Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. May Worship Series on I Love to Tell the Story. And what a journey of stories it has been. We have explored telling the gospel story, the story of Jesus. We have explored telling the story of the Bible, not an easy story to encapsulate. A story of the church, a story about not just granting grace, but asking for grace to be granted. We've explored last week telling our own stories, for each story is as individual as the storyteller. And today we're going to try to learn how to tell some of the hardest stories to tell properly and appropriately, the story of another. How do you tell someone else's story? How do you do it with authenticity? How do you do it so that it is genuine and that you are not simply co-opting someone else's experience or someone else for your own reasons? We are not utilitarians when it comes to our theology. We do not believe that you can do something against one for the greater good. We believe that all people are beloved and that no one is the means to our own ends. God rejected this when God decided God's self to come and save us rather than having to co-opt a human being to do that for us. God came and offered us grace in God's own presence incarnate in Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, we have already been given the knowledge that stories are powerful, the story of the gospel, the stories that are contained within the Bible. We know that. If you grew up listening to stories, whether they are stories about our country, stories about our faith, stories about your family, you know how powerful stories are. They can give us purpose. They can give us uh, an idea to aspire toward and to work hard to achieve. Stories are what give fuel to our faith. And so these stories are a gift, but they can also be used to curse others. And we don't want to be those people. That's not who God calls us to be. God is calling us to be a people of love and grace and liberation. And if we are using our words and our stories to hurt people, to humiliate them, to call them out on the carpet, or to any way, shape, or form make them seem less than, then we are failing to be the good stewards of one another that we are called to be. God created every single human being, created in the image of God and thus endowed with dignity. And as human beings, we are called to preserve the dignity of one another. So we cannot simply co-opt someone else's story. It's an abuse of our power, and there are power in words. If you've ever had someone gossip about you or tell a story about you that you didn't authorize, that you didn't approve, and that has been used to bring pain and suffering to you, then you know, you know how powerful stories can be. And so today we get a lesson on how to tell a story about someone else in an appropriate way, in a way that is blessed by God. And that is in this letter that we have. Now, a lot of people aren't really familiar with this letter, possibly because a lot of the names in this letter are not easy to pronounce. They're hard to pronounce. Uh, but here we are. We have the letter to Philemon. That is a man. Some people call him Phil. We're not going to do that. That's not his name. He's, we haven't been authorized to shorten his name to Phil. We're going to call him Philemon. And Philemon is a very important person. 
In fact, the apostle Paul has written a letter to him, but the opening, the greeting, includes two other leaders in this local church, this little church that is a house church at the prison time. But Philemon is one of the leaders of that church, which means that he's probably got a little bit of means. One, because he is hosting everybody, which at this point includes feeding them every time they gather, which is not easy to do. But it also recognizes the fact that Philemon has a slave, and that slave's name is Anismus. And Anismus has been in service to Paul. Paul is imprisoned yet again as he continues to grow his ministry and travel around the Roman Empire and plant churches and convert people to belief in the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. He tends to make the authorities angry in doing that. He certainly makes the synagogues and the Pharisees there upset, and he tends to also upset the Roman authorities because when you start upsetting rich and powerful people, they tend to complain to the politics of that day. And so he was often finding himself toward the end of his lifetime constantly thrown into prison. Now in prison, they had a practice where you could have someone come and tend to you. They had a practice whereby you were allowed to have someone that could go back and forth. They could carry letters out. They could bring letters in. They could bring word to you. They could tend to some of your needs, bringing you food or taking care of you, going out and getting you new clothes or getting your clothes mended and cleaned. They could do those sorts of things. And Paul has had others do that for him during the time that he has been imprisoned. And his letter today reveals that while he has been in prison, a slave that belongs to Philemon, Anismus, has come to him and has been serving him. Now, we don't have a real fleshed-out picture of what that means, but we also know from other sources that others have done this. They have sent their slaves or their servants on their behalf to take care of Paul while he is in this predicament. And one of the things that we have to keep in our mind is that this is not racial slavery. This is economic slavery. That's important because that means that something happened in order for Onesimus to come under the auspices of being a slave to Philemon. Generally, this means that he went into debt to Philemon or even his family went into debt. They were unable to pay that, and so you would go to work in the household. You would become part of the household. Your, your owner had to take care of you. Uh, this was not the kind of relationship that we saw here in the United States under racial slavery, but slavery at the end of the day is slavery. You are not your own person. You do not have your own autonomy. You cannot make your own choices, and you are held to a standard that you did not agree to. You are enslaved. And so Anismus has been living like this under the household of Philemon. Now, this is the point where people, even within the church, start to make up details you ever found that? Have you ever listened to somebody tell a story that you were party to or that you're in and go, that's not how that happened. No, 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 no. I was there. That is not how that happened. This is where people start to take liberty and flesh out the story. And in the case of Onesimus, there are usually two streams of thought over how Onesimus came to be serving Paul. The first is that Philemon sent him there. Again, as I said, we have proof that this is something that other people had done, that they had sent their servants and their slaves to Paul to be of use to him because they wanted to support Paul, and you can't just tell Rome to get Paul out of prison, so they tried to make it possible for Paul to at least be safe and perhaps even somewhat comfortable until that issue could be resolved. The other side is the more salacious, 
It's the one where people say, maybe Onesimus ran to Paul because he had had a disagreement with Philemon. Maybe he fled his owner because he had stolen from him, that there had been some kind of catalyst that made him flee. Well, if you were a slave and you want to run away from your owner, I'm not sure why you would run to prison. Doesn't make a lot of sense there. But you can see where people are kind of filling in the, you know, the more juicy facts that they don't have and are hoping to make a more compelling story. But the bottom line is that Paul considers none of that pertinent. Paul doesn't tell you why Onesimus is there. It's not important to the story. It's not important to make it seem like, oh, Onesimus had done wrong or Philemon's a bad owner. None of that. That's not what's important. Those are sidetracking the real part of the story. And the real part of the story is that Paul had a man come to him who was there to help him even though Paul couldn't help himself in prison. And there in prison... Paul began to have a relationship with this person, a relationship that culminated in Paul realizing that this person could no longer be a slave to Paul. That Paul recognized, as he is the one who wrote, in Christ there is no Greek or Jew, there is no slave or free, there is no male or female, in Christ we are all equalized. And so Paul is now confronted with the reality of a relationship that is not equal. Confronted with a relationship with a human being that Paul now looks at and says, you can't just be a slave to me anymore. I can no longer hear that narrative or repeat it. It must be changed. And so Paul does the only thing that Paul can do. He sends a letter to the only one that can change the narrative the only one empowered to change the story, and that is Philemon. And so he sends the letter, and we have it here. And in the letter, he says, so judiciously, I preferred not to do anything without your consent. That's good. Don't do anything that he didn't agree to. In order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Well, I'm sure when the apostle Paul, the apostle of the resurrected and risen, ascended Christ, who called him forth with a miraculous call, who has given the, been given the stamp of approval by the remaining apostles in Jerusalem, that apostle Paul says to you, do you think you should free your slave? No pressure. Well, of course there's pressure there. But notice that Paul did not say, release him. Paul doesn't say that at all. Paul says, let me tell you who he is to me. Let me paint for you a picture of who he could become for you. This is who he is. He is a Christian like you and me. He is a person who has been liberated from sin and death. And this person has been so beloved in how he has helped me and cared for me and loved me and been in a right relationship with me that I'm asking if you will let him remain that way. It's one thing to be in prison and have a slave with you. You're both prisoners of different authorities, but you're both prisoners. But one day, when Paul emerges from that prison, he will suddenly return to here. And Philemon is somewhere in here, and then you have an isthmus. But what happens is that in the name of Jesus Christ, Paul brings himself down to here. And he is talking to Philemon as an equal. Not, I the Apostle Paul. 
But I, Paul the Christian, and you, Philemon the Christian, let us consider what story we will tell. I am telling you the prelude of the story, what I have experienced and what my hopes and my dreams are for Onesimus, because while we are here, Onesimus is still here. And now, brother, will you raise him up so that we may all be together on this level? Will you author a new story for him? And again, Paul could dictate this. Paul could say, I need him, give him to me, and then Paul could free him. But that's not the story that Paul wants to tell. Paul doesn't want to manipulate Philemon. He wants to empower Philemon to make the right choice. But guess what? We don't know what happened. Do you remember the days before DVR and recorded video when you would be watching something on TV or a movie and then you'd have to leave and you're like, I'll never know how it ends, ever. And if I want to watch it, I'm going to have to find it in the TV guide and watch it from the beginning again. We really had a struggle on our hands when you were watching something. Do I get the end of the story? You couldn't even Google it and find out. But now, now we can find out the ending. In fact, I know people who are Googling the ending while we're still watching the movie. But we don't know this ending. We don't have the end of the story. Does Philemon liberate him? What happens to Onesimus? We don't know. We don't have Philemon part two. How dare you not liberate Onesimus? Or, you know, thank you so much for setting him free. We don't have the letter of Onesimus. Thank you for, for setting me free in a time when it was to your advantage because Paul is asking Onesimus to take a fiscal hit. He's asking him to set free someone that has incredible financial benefit to the household. Another set of hands to do the work, another set of hands to clean and to host, another set of hands and feet to do the things that Philemon may not be able to do all the time. Just lose that. Now, what if the amount of debt that, that allowed Onesimus to become a slave was something like the modern equivalent to a quarter of a million dollars? And Paul is saying, just forgive it. You'll be fine. Onesimus is thinking, yeah, okay. We don't, have the, we don't have the rest of it. We don't have that story. We're going to have to live our lives trusting in the assurance of grace and get into the kingdom to come and then have a conversation with Onesimus. We're going to have to get in there and figure out what the rest of the story was. Now, all of us can imagine what we would make the rest of the story, right? You can picture what you would say. You can picture how you hope or dream that the story would end. But it's not our story that we're telling. This is Paul and Onesimus and Philemon, and they are telling the story. They are telling the story up to this point, and then they are handing it over to Philemon, end the story. Write the conclusion of the story. And not to have any annotation of epilogue or <laughs> not to have it. Can you imagine? Why would you save this letter? What if you only had two-thirds of your favorite movie and you never found out how it ended? Right? Or if you ever got to the end of the book and you realize like the last four chapters fell out, how disappointing would that be? That is the story that we have. 
The story is actually about conveying who Onesimus is as a child of God and who Onesimus can become as a sibling in Christ to Philemon. That is the story, the entire story. And it ends like that. But we are a people that like to know not only the ending of the story, but the aftermath. We want to know how it goes. But the Bible doesn't give you that part. The Bible is telling you about the experience and about what has happened. Now, there are a lot of clergy in this world that tell a lot of stories. And we are all told officially in seminary not to tell unauthorized stories. It's bad for business. It doesn't go over well. I mean, I have colleagues. I see them. They wear shirts that are like everything you say might become part of a future sermon. That is not true. That is not an accurate thing. And if it is... That's a problem, but that is not who we are. If I'm going to tell a story, I should ask you, can I tell that story? But even better is, how would you like me to tell your story? How can I tell your story so that it is authentic, that it is genuine, that it pays homage to what you have experienced it? And I don't just co-opt all of your experiences for myself. I had a clergy colleague one time tell a story and had co-opted female ordination in the United Methodist Church, which didn't come into existence until 1968. It was the first time we started ordaining women officially, with the start of the United Methodist Church. Up until that point, in all the iterations of Methodist Episcopalism and Methodism, you could not be ordained if you were a woman. In 68, they started doing it. And so my colleague had kind of taken that story and used it as proof to why we can start doing other things in the church. And I said, I don't think that that's a very responsible use of a story that I am a part of. Because first of all, it wasn't a one and done. It's not like, oh, we put it in that book of discipline and it's all good now. There are still churches that reject female clergy. There are still congregants that reject female clergy. There are still places in the world where you cannot be ordained if you are a woman. That story is not over. Don't make that story seem like it's over. In fact, even since we have started to emerge from the pandemic, I officiated a funeral where somebody stood right here in the church that I was officiating in and told me that they don't think that women should be clergy. I was like, do you want to do this? Now, in my snarkier days, I usually respond with, yeah, tell me about it. I tried to tell Jesus no, so you take it up with him. But on my other days, I say something like, I am here because too many men will not. I am here because God called me to do this. This wasn't my plan. I didn't pick this. But I am here because God called and I answered. And not only did I answer, but I had to run a gauntlet of ordination where I had to prove to other people that I was called and that I could do this job. And at the end of the day, for reasons that are completely unbeknownst to you and me, they said yes. But don't take my story and act like it's over. Because we still confront these sins. The sins that say that two X's are not equal to an X and a Y. The sins that say that just because my voice is a few octaves higher and my body is a few curves different, that I can't be exactly who my male colleagues could be. We still fight that battle. Don't take our story. And I remember going back and forth with him, my colleague, and he was like, but I see a parallel. And I was like, that's not your line to draw. It's not your line. 
You control your story, and we should respect your story. I don't co-opt his story. Guess how easy it was for my friend to be ordained? He's a white man who went to UVA for undergrad. He went to Duke for seminary, and life has been peachy ever since. That's not his story either. That's not genuine. It's not authentic. And it's not okay for me as someone who struggles in some areas to claim that he has struggled in none. That's to deny him all of his trials and tribulations and triumphs. And we can't do that. You know, as I was preparing for this Sunday and this service, I had in my mind exactly what we were going to talk about, and I had examples of stories that I wanted to tell. In fact, we were chugging along really well until Tuesday, and Tuesday we did promotion for three of our preschool classes, and I had 35 kids sitting right here, and they came up, and we read their name, and we gave them a medal that said, I am a child of God, and they received their devotional book. And we, they sang, and we had a chapel together and blessed them, and then they went off to eat you know, sugar and drink sugar in the fellowship hall and take pictures, and it was a beautiful day. It was a wonderful experience. And I went home just so glad to be a part of that story. And then Texas happened. And probably like most of you, the first thing that happened is that my heart completely broke in two. Because I have a passion for children, and I love children, and we try to keep children very safe in our church and in our community. And then to think that that many children were suddenly gone upset me and hurt me and made me afraid. And then I started thinking about the fact that I have been at this church for six years, and every year we have promoted kids through our preschool program into kindergarten, and that those children are now second, third, and fourth, and fifth graders. And what would I do if that happened to those kids? What would I say if I had to officiate their funeral? Because a lot of people are telling their stories, stories of their tragic death, their lives cut short, and that is true. But that is not their story. Their story is not their demise. Their story is their lie. And their family and their friends, their classmates, are telling their stories. You can find them online. You can find video and audio. You can see that these were kids that even at their young age were vivacious and effervescent. They were so life-giving. They loved their family and their friends. Some of them loved their churches. They loved their community. They inspired other people to do better. They helped their friends in school. They had their own struggles because, yes, they were human, and yes, they were children. But the stories that we should be telling are about how beautiful their lives were. They are more than the way that they died. And we try to remember that. I've officiated too many funerals for those that have committed suicide to not have that in the forefront of my mind, that we don't judge a life by its ending or its breadth. We judge a life by the love that was experienced. We judge a life based upon who they were to us and who they will always be to God. That is how we judge a life. We don't sit here on the back end of death and decide that because of the length of a life or because of the manner in which that person left this life, that they are less than. And we certainly don't make that their only narrative. That's not fair. 
Because while we feel like those stories are over, that those young people are gone, they are not gone. As long as their family and their friends and their schoolmates are alive, their stories will be a part of them. The impact that they had will continue. And their story is not done because they now are with God and God is holding them in trust for the day of resurrection when Christ returns and we all are given new life. We will see them again and their story will continue. But for now, we have lost so many stories that would have been. I have looked at their pictures and I have said their names out loud. And I have thought to myself, what stories will now never be told? Could there have been the next John Wesley? The next Desmond Tutu? The next Mother Teresa? The next Maya Angelou? Could the next or even the better have been there, and those stories are gone. And then we find ourselves brought back to what Paul was doing. We can say to people, we can try to dictate their stories. You can try to dictate a story. If you've ever had children, you can try to dictate the story, right? You will get up, you will get dressed, you will go to school, you will eat this, you will eat that, this kind of thing. You can try to do that. And you might have some reasonable success with that. Eventually, the narratives become something more like, just put something on, something appropriate, doesn't necessarily have to match, cover all the vital organs, let's go. You start to change the narrative a little bit, right? Because the older people get, the more they want to flex their power in making decisions and controlling their own narrative. I have watched as parents have tried to control the narrative of what children are gonna wear, and that works until they leave the door. Right? That works until they leave. I have literally seen people changing at the bus stop. Driving by like, what in the world is going on over here? And I realize she's taking off one shirt and exposing another. And, oh, when she pulls down the track pants, there's a skirt. A little one. Underneath. I have seen people do that. They are writing their own narrative. And that is what they want to do. They want to tell their own story. And we can try to tell their story. We can try to control it. Because every single one of us is not just an author of our own story. Because of power and privilege in this world, some of us are editors of other people's stories. And some of us are even taking the opportunity, thanks to the gift of technology and the internet, of becoming publishers of other people's stories. And think about the stories that we, use, that we tell, the stories that we are telling online. Some people are just making up things for these stories. Some people are taking some facts, and, and like a lot of those that have written commentaries are trying to fill in the blanks, what's possible, what's probable, what makes the story juicier. They're editing, and then they're publishing. But my siblings in Christ, don't waste your time and your text and your words on the bad stories. Don't tell stories about people you don't like. You know, ever notice that there's no other story in here outside of his interaction with Jesus Christ about Pontius Pilate? You ever notice that? People didn't like Pontius Pilate. 
Why would we tell stories about him? We don't like him. Why would we take time and pages away from Jesus to talk about Pilate? Let's tell Jesus stories. Let's tell the story about how he fed thousands of people. Let's tell the story about how he forgave people that they wanted to stone. Let's tell stories about how he healed people who were sick, people who were possessed and not in control of their minds and their bodies and their spirits. Let's tell stories about Jesus triumphing over death, rising in resurrection on Easter. Let's tell those stories. Let's not waste time on Pontius Pilate. The next time you are given the opportunity to tell a story that is not your own, may you follow the Bible's precedent. Don't tell stories about people you don't like. It's never going to go well. And don't write commentary and edit into things that are humiliating and embarrassing. Now, maybe somebody gives you permission to tell that. Maybe. Maybe Anismus gave Paul permission to tell all of the salacious truth, but Paul, in good Christian wisdom, didn't tell it. Because at the end of the day, does it matter why Anismus was a slave? He was a slave. At the end of the day, does it really matter what the catalyst was for him to appear at the jail and help Paul? No. Because really, those details aren't going to change the fact that you want the end of the story. You want the piece of the story that goes, well, where did Anismus go? What happened? Did Philemon do it? Now, maybe the answer is implied. If Philemon was not going to free Anismus, I don't think he would have kept that letter. Right? Like every other famous thing you ever see, you want me to what? Think he would have gotten rid of the letter. That's what I think about Paul's letter. But he didn't. He didn't get rid of the letter. In fact, they preserved the letter and they kept reading it. And not only did they keep reading it in that church, but then at some point they shared it with other churches. We don't put books and letters in the Bible that were only put forth by one person. We don't do that. They have to be agreed upon. <laughs> so other churches, other groups of Christians, other communities and families of faith got to experience that letter, and they said, there's something here. There's something powerful, and we need to keep this. And so they put it in the Bible. And that's how we know that one time there was a slave. And that slave met someone who was imprisoned. And both of them developed a relationship that was so powerful and poignant that the one who would leave the prison and find himself restored knew that the only thing that he could do in the name of Jesus Christ that would be righteous would be to step down and lower himself that Anismus might rise. That is the story that is recorded here. You can hear it in Paul's words, how much Anismus meant to him. But you can also hear in his words how much Philemon means to him too. And he tells a story about relationships and that relationships can change things. 
They can change circumstances here and now. They can change the story that will be told and that will be actualized in the days to come. They can change the lives and the stories of people that are not yet here in this world. Because ladies and gentlemen, my siblings in Christ, I present to you the ripple effects of a little letter to a man named Philemon. That that story tells Christians a new way of doing things. That we can humble ourselves and yet raise up the lowly. That we can choose not to use our power and privilege over to order the Philemons of this world, but that we can use our righteous relationships to offer a different way. Would you choose a righteous path if it was placed before you? And if you knew that you wouldn't walk it alone, and would you tell that story? That is the lesson of Anismus. That is the reason the story has been preserved. We can change the story. Now, I told you that you are an author, and some of us are editors, and some of us are publishers, and some of us are all of those at the same time. Just as some of us find ourselves in all three positions, Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. In the church, you might be Paul. You might have power and authority and a voice that people listen to and respect in the church. In your home, you may be Philemon. You may be the one that is in charge and that gets to make decisions that have radical financial impact. But out in the world, you might find yourself like Onesimus. You might find yourselves enslaved to a system or to decisions that are not your own. But the power that you have is the power of the story. What stories will you author? What stories will you edit and retell? And what stories will you publish? And why? Why will you tell those stories? And if they are told to hurt people, don't tell them. If they are told to humiliate or embarrass, don't tell them. But if they are told to highlight the way that you have been blessed by another person, the way another person helped you to be better than you were before, if they are stories that convey how you experience the love and grace of Jesus Christ in that person, then those are the stories that we should be telling. There are far too many authors, editors, and publishers of stories that are meant to harm and embarrass. Those are not going to be bestsellers. Don't publish them. Instead, look for the stories that make you better and offer those to the world as stories that might help another. Those are the stories that we need to tell. I'll close with this. I have always been a big fan of Mother Teresa. I'm in awe of that woman. I can't believe what she did. I can't believe who she was. I can't believe the way that she inspired people that have never been to Calcutta and probably will never go. But she planted the seeds of change and compassion in a way that is unparalleled. And if you've been around me long enough, you've probably heard me say her name a lot. I totally respect her. She was like this tall and didn't wear heels. I love her. But I can remember when there was a priest in the Catholic Church who violated her confidentiality and flooded the world with her doubts and her concerns. And I remember seeing some of them. She had died. She wasn't there to refute it. She wasn't there to offer 
her insight or to give her narrative. But because of their relationship, she had opened up her heart and expressed things that were meant to be private. And that priest, I assume, meant to do the world good by sharing those stories. I assume that he meant to go see, even someone like Mother Teresa has doubts. I don't think you need Mother Teresa to know that great beings have doubts. We sit in a sanctuary that has a picture of Jesus expressing his desire not to die on the cross. You don't have to expose another human being to know that that is true. But why do we have to tell stories that we think are humanizing that are in fact humiliating? Why do we have to tell stories that detract from the gloriousness that was experienced in her? Did she have doubts? Probably. Jesus did. Was she imperfect? Definitely. We all are. What benefit is there of telling that story? We already know those things. Instead, the stories about how she would go out and beg to feed children that nobody even saw anymore. They were so prolific and so constant on the streets that people didn't even see them as human beings anymore. But she looked at them like they were Jesus Christ. That's a story worth telling. So the next time you find yourself in that powerful Pauline position, may you choose very carefully the story that you will tell and how you will tell it and the facts that are vital to the story. May you choose not to be the omnipotent, omniscient, hands-off narrator, but instead choose to be a narrator that shows the relationship and how it changed you. That is the story of Jesus Christ. That is the story of the Bible. That is the story of the church. That is our story as Christians. That relationship changes everything. May you be storytellers, the likes of Paul, that tell stories that inspire for generations that you cannot even fathom yet. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.